This is Roadmap to Resilience, an audio series for professionals and families who are supporting children experiencing stress and trauma. I'm Dr. Julian Ford. And I'm Dr. Amanda Zelahusky. Whether you work with children or you have children of your own, this podcast is for you. Please note that this episode contains brief discussion of suicidal thoughts and attempts around the 20-minute mark. Please take gentle care of yourself and skip ahead if you need to. Communities play an essential role in fostering resilience for children who've experienced stress and trauma. And I think this is especially true for the communities that often are listened to least and that have the least access to resources, communities that are marginalized because of race, ethnicity, language, national background, income. And we need to be thinking carefully as we help children and families develop a roadmap to resilience, how we can engage and learn from and work with the communities in which those children and families live, especially when those communities represent the groups who are subject to additional kinds of traumas that are based on race, on ethnicity, that have to do with discrimination, that have to do with inequities and disparities. So in this episode, we're gonna be talking about the wisdom of communities, but we're also gonna be talking about the importance of not letting any community and its wisdom be left behind or left aside, and how we as helping professionals, as parents, as community members, can bring forth the wisdom of our communities and support communities in providing the expertise that is necessary so that we don't tell communities how to recover or how to be resilient. We learn from communities how they find resilience and how they support recovery from trauma. Yeah, we have a lot to learn from marginalized communities. And part of the reason is because in so many cases for the disparities and reasons you mentioned, Julian, marginalized communities have had to step up and care for their own when a lot of our bigger systems and policies have fallen short, you know, for a variety of reasons, including discrimination. So we have a lot to learn from them. And and also, as our guests will share, ways that we need to hold larger systems responsible for providing those equitable resources to everyone who needs them. So this episode is going to focus specifically on ways communities can foster resilience. And a few of our guests are going to highlight how community action can really align and push back when needed against some of these existing structures uh, and lack of support where that's happening. In our next episode, we're actually also going to dive deeper into the ways that specific laws and policies can foster resilience. So let's begin our conversation about communities. And let's think deeply about how we can learn from and listen to communities as well as supporting them. We'll begin with Karen Zilberstein, who's a licensed independent clinical social worker and the author of the book, Parents Under Pressure, Struggling to Raise Children in an Unequal America. I like to think about resilience for these families on an individual family and community level. So resilience is being able to um, thrive as well as you can, despite the circumstances. Let's not just put it on individual coping. I think there are some really good individual coping tools that we can teach, but we have to also think about the family and the community, what's available in that in order to free up again the time. So if we wanna teach the individual coping and make time for that in their schedule, we have something else has to give somewhere else. If we provide more community and family supports, 
we can actually provide more opportunities for them to use these coping skills. So I, I like to think about it on those three levels intersecting and working together. And then we can really promote resilience if we look at all three factors. Yeah, and, and similarly thinking ideally, I mean, you've spoken a lot about resilient communities and how communities need to step up. I've heard you give some really beautiful examples, especially over the last year in, in the pandemic. And so I'm just sort of curious, like, yeah, you've worked with so many communities. How can communities better foster resilience in these vulnerable families? I, I think there's a, a number of different roles for communities besides thinking about what's the quality of life that somebody needs to have, a living wage, a safe neighborhood, a decent school, green space. Actually, there's been studies that show that when kids are near green space, they're less aggressive. So what are the things that we need, communities need so that their residents can thrive, neighbors, neighbors helping neighbors to the extent. Uh, the other thing I think communities can do is that we can think about resilience and help and social supports on a community level. When we come together as a community to grieve, express what's happened in a communal way rather than an individual way, it's very, very powerful. I mean, that's in a sense what the Black Lives Matter movement is. So the Black Lives Matter movement has brought communities together to express their grievances, to protest, and to demand change. And I think that is a part of resilience. There's all of the elements that we want in there. There's validation, there's action, there's the expression of feelings that, that are being validated. There's making sense of what's happened to you and what's happened to your community. And there's something about it being joint that I think is very powerful. That's why we have rituals. I think we can't forget how powerful all of that is. And there's lots of communities, especially lower resourced communities that use these a lot more. I mean, the black church is an example of that. Black barbershops, you know, these are areas where communities have found community ways to build resilience and support each other. And we should treasure those. There was an interesting study, this one isn't on parents, but the researchers at Northwestern University, I think that's where they are, were studying rural poor African-American youth. And they were looking at the ones who had actually succeeded and who had psychosocial resilience. And when they studied them and looked at them compared to their peers who hadn't done so well, they found signs of, of premature aging and other physical difficulties that the actually less resilient peers didn't have. They were resilient in some areas, but there had been a cost to them in terms of their physical health. Yeah. And I think that we have to keep in mind that it takes a lot of effort to rise above circumstances that are really, really poor. There's, there's a level that, that we can be resilient and that resilience really helps, but there's a level at which the effort is just too great. Yeah, I think it, it comes together and when we pile on discrimination, racism, structural inequities, and then learning disabilities, and low income, we really put a load on that is almost impossible to, to hurdles that are almost impossible to jump over by yourself. Yeah. And your services, how, how do you address the, the needs of kids and families who are, are dealing with these multiple sources of adversity? First of all, we have to acknowledge them. And we have to acknowledge that they're not their fault because there is that piece that is, and we know that validating, we know that validating somebody's position and not blaming them is incredibly helpful. 
It helps them get a clearer picture. It takes that extra emotional load off. And then I work with them to locate whatever supports they can find. And I really think with them, who in your community can you call upon? We look at what the needs are and we make a list of what the needs are. And then we think through, where can you get help? And I have to say, there are cultural biases here against getting that sort of help. And I will sometimes hear from parents, well, I'm the parent, I'm supposed to be able to do it myself. And sometimes we have to get over that first resilience that no, you can't do it completely yourself. You have a bigger load than others and it's, good, it's better for you and your whole family if you get more help. So where is it going to come from? And people have come up with some surprising ideas when you really explore with them where that help is in the informal range and as well as the formal. So one person ended up having a colleague with an Airbnb property they rented out and they gave the parents the property one night a week for free in the middle of the week. And the parents took turns every other week spending one night alone there. It made a huge difference on their ability to get a good night's sleep and recover. So they come up, if you really explore with families, often they come up with surprising solutions for where the help might come from that you hadn't thought about. But it sounds like some of it comes down to giving them that permission and encouragement to seek and accept the help, that there is all this stigma. I agree on parents that you have to do it on your own and you know, you're supposed to be able to figure it out for your kids. So yeah, I think some of this is, is working with people, like you said, to realize you are carrying a bigger load. The expectations on yourself are unreasonable right now. We like to think in America that everybody should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but you have to have the bootstraps before you can pull yourself up. I said that taking care of yourself and asking your community to help you take care of yourself and take care of your children are worthy endeavors. Here's Dr. April Alexander, an associate professor in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of Denver. What role does the community itself have in building resilience for youth who've had some of these difficult experiences? Have you seen examples of what a resilient community looks like and how they help support their youth? Yeah, I think uh, it's going to some of the non-Western models. Uh, If we go back to kind of indigenous practices and practices from Asian cultures of collective care. I think with everything that happened in this last year and a half, I was still so excited and still so hopeful because communities did engage in collective care. Uh, They might not name it and know it, but they did. Mm -hmm. Um, So when the stay-at-home order hit, our schools closed down and we went to online learning. Well, let's think about our kids in school. How many receive their only meals at school? Uh, Their breakfast and lunch being their only meals of the day they were receiving that at school. Mm -hmm. So I saw quickly our community here, and I'm sure communities all over the place said, oh my gosh, we need to deliver or have pickup for breakfast and lunch for these youth. Uh, Again, addressing that issue of food insecurity. That was collective action. That was collective resilience that was so powerful and they did it so quickly. You know, even the silly things, okay, we have to physically distance, but uh, can we have the car parades for people's birthdays in communities and seeing that I participated in a few? Uh, Can we have, uh, at my university, we had online dance parties for families across the country just to connect and grandparents were showing up to see their grandkids on these daily dance parties. That was collective care and resilience that um, I think, again, I hope moving forward, we don't take for granted that communities can come together, know what their needs are and figure out ways to support one another. 
uh, fundraising again up last year. Um, so there are so many ways that we just kick into gear and engage in that collective action uh, that we really need to center and think about how uh, we are supporting and caring for each other. Again, I think it's a lot of marginalized communities who do that very quickly. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about next time, next time we have a natural disaster, next time we have a pandemic, how can we start that earlier? How can we hold our uh, bigger systems and our governments accountable for implementing that type of collective care? Uh, again, I, I think there is some heart in it that communities are leading it, uh, but I, I think there's ways we can improve that going forward. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Viola Von Eden on how law enforcement and social workers engage with the community. Dr. Von Eden is an associate professor and PhD program director with the Ethlyn R. Strong School of Social Work at Norfolk State University. So I was actually just thinking about what you were describing, particularly for you know kids from diverse backgrounds that maybe have complicated relationships with the police. That was making me think about you know here in some of these cases where kids are disclosing sexual abuse, we may be telling them it's important that you you know share this experience or tell whoever the person in authority is, but maybe especially law enforcement, what happened. At the same time, we have a child who, you know, has had experiences where that isn't a trusted adult for them for a variety of reasons. So I'm wondering how you've, how you kind of think about the complexity of these two things converging, you know, systemic racism and maybe complex experiences and relationships with law enforcement and trying to keep you safe because of this other experience. Well, and I think it's a onus that goes both directions. I'm not going to sit here and say um, that it's solely law enforcement has to change. I've worked with training law enforcement for many, many years around um, child abuse and neglect issues. It's something about reaching across the aisle. I do think that law enforcement needs to make a more concerted effort to be engaged in their community. I'm not saying they need to be social workers because um, I've heard that, but I think just being involved so that, that people become familiar with them, people feel and get to know that they are safe. I love, there's a, a picture I remember seeing on Facebook of a young police officer who goes out and plays basketball with the kids um, and takes them snacks so that the kids kind of get to know him and get to see him as a trusted adult in their community. Or uh, the story of the uh, police officers who were called on some teenagers playing basketball in the streets. And I guess one of the neighbors felt like they were being too loud. And when the police arrived, they started playing basketball right along with the kids. Mm -hmm. I think we need more of that because I think it's about community policing. And I think that even for social workers, child protective service workers, child welfare workers, it is about having community-based services that can be of support to families in a way that doesn't bring shame. It's, it's, not, it's not solely when you no longer can feed your family or you've done something wrong that you can hear from the social worker or hear from the law enforcement officer, but it's when things are going right and when we can do more preventative measures in communities to support and strengthen families, then I think it's a win-win for everyone. I think it's it's like the slippery slope, but like, you know, let's not have it get too slippery. Let's 
allow some intervention, some prevention prior to, so people know, you know, I'm struggling here. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm struggling, whether it's with depression, mental health issues, I'm struggling because, you know, I just don't feel like I I can do right by my kids. I may need more parenting that I'm capable of providing to my children, but making it so that people can feel comfortable sharing that. um, I know oftentimes in African-American communities in particular, it's the church that they go and get support from. And that has been a wonderful resource for them for so many years. But I would like to see us expand that philosophy um, that mental health issues should not be a stigma. I think we're realizing more and more that the services are available and how, um, how much they can be utilized, but we have to, we have to make that effort. And I'm a person, you know, my career as a licensed clinical social worker has been the person you kind of call after you have a problem. So when I say that, I'm, you know, guilty of it too, getting more involved in the prevention side. Mm -hmm. In this next interview, we'll hear first from Jessica Fireman, an attorney and senior managing director of the Juvenile Law Center. We'll also hear from Hernan Carvente Martinez, a social entrepreneur, community organizer, and leader in the fight to end youth incarceration. Hernan is the founder and CEO of Healing Ninjas Incorporated, a tech and media company developing tools and resources for people on healing journeys. Many of us think of ourselves just as members of a community, not necessarily as a leader or a policymaker, but everyone's input is crucial. And every one of us can help foster resilience in the lives of children around them, especially after they've experienced trauma. So what can they do to help? Let's listen to attorney fireman and advocate Carvente Martinez. I mean, you know, I'm all, you know, trying to get the legislature to change things. So we, that doesn't happen unless there's a sense that that's what the community wants. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that we need is for people to speak out and and don't stop. And uh, we were talking about listening. Well, if you understand what this problem is and that there's a totally, completely better way to uh, run our our country and respond to young people, then join in on um, policy campaigns campaigns to make a difference. So that would be, you know, one one simple step that anyone could do. I will add that on top of what Jessica said, you know, go out, exercise your vote, exercise your ability to push policymakers, but also just exercise your ability to remind another person that they are worthy, that they are not alone, that they are supported, right? Because I think we forget a lot about that. And when we keep saying over and over throughout this whole conversation around bringing it back to the community, You know, we have not created so much space within our community to just support one another and to really be there for one another, right? Like there is that concept of hashtag you're not alone, right? But ultimately, there's still not enough safe space where people feel comfortable enough to just say, I'm in pain, I'm struggling, et cetera. So if you have, you know, someone close to you, you have friends, you have people in your life, just don't forget to remind them how much you appreciate them, how much you love them. And and just that basic thing uh, could save someone's life. And, and I say that from personal experience. And so just reminding people to exercise their humanity with one another more often, I think is really important. I mean, I will say this, and, and I didn't want to share too much of it intentionally because I, I'm not in this space and I did not create Healing Ninjas just because I thought it was a good solution for the community. It is. But personally, as a someone who struggles with anxiety and depression every day, who has like 
survived the suicide attempt three years ago and who has just had to be the dog and pony show of the criminal justice movement when I first came out of prison. I refuse now to really let my story be the thing that defines me. Like, it's like, we need more than stories at this point. We need the solutions that are coming out of those stories. And we need to make sure that we're protecting the people who we're asking all of this labor from. Because three years ago, I was set on ending my life. Mm -hmm. I did not complete that task. And I am glad that I didn't. But I ultimately don't want anyone else to go through what I went through, which is this being held to this pedestal of excellence as a formerly incarcerated young person where I can't mess up, I can't make mistakes because there's an entire community of people who are saying that I'm all these great things, but never once questioned whether or not I needed support. So as much as we can listen to young people and really, really listen, create the opportunity for them to actually say what is on their minds and in their hearts, I think that's going to take us so much further when it comes to this mental health work as well. Go support Healing Ninjas right now. Like, go follow Healing Ninjas on every platform, literally every platform. It's the same word at Healing Ninjas everywhere. Um, and then just check out the podcast if you have a chance. And if you're someone who's a member of the community or if you're a professional who has a story, I want to hear it. And so, if you want to come on the podcast, definitely let me know because we need more of those raw perspectives to normalize what the healing journey looks like for everyone. I really appreciated Hernan's ability to be vulnerable in sharing his experience, but also the importance that the community played in his recovery and his ability to move past some of the most difficult and dark moments of his life. Um, his emphasis on the need for community leaders to also receive support, which I think is an important message for anyone who's working with people with trauma or just, you know, really difficult experiences that we also need support. And you'll hear more about that in our episode focused on how helpers help themselves. I also wanted to just take another moment to encourage everybody to check out Hernan's organization, uh, which you can find at healingninjas.org. Hernan and Healing Ninjas are a powerful reminder of how recovery can actually then become a pathway to helping others to recover and actually changing some of the conditions that lead to trauma. And we'll hear more about that in our next episode on policies as well. So let's close out this conversation and we'll return to Dr. April Alexander, who shares what gives her a sense of hope. Like we said earlier, that collective action, the people power, um, one of the things that we saw in this last year, especially with regard to the racial injustices, is when people show up and when people show up in mass, things change. We, we saw it here locally. We saw people going to city council meetings for the very first time. Uh, I think I just saw a post right before I logged on, you know, people had no clue what the city of Denver budget was and what it looked like. Uh, and now they're involved and they're like, what do you, what do you mean we're only giving 2% of our city budget to housing uh, when we have this really epidemic of homelessness here? Mm. Um, and so people were showing up and people were wanting to learn and have that learner and listener perspective. Uh, during my trainings, I showed the New York Times bestsellers list from last summer. Uh, how to Be Anti-Racist, White Fragility, the book on redlining, all of these books that have been out for years are now on the bestsellers list and people are picking them up for the very first time and wanting to learn more and educate themselves. So, you know, I know it's a little Pollyanna-ish, but I, I think in this moment, people are trying to get more involved in trying to learn and are creating change in their communities. 
And I'm hoping that stakeholders, legislators, Congress members are seeing that and um, for some of them getting scared uh, that when people are speaking up um, and their voices are being heard and centered, they're getting policies changed to benefit them. So I, I think that's what keeps me hopeful in this moment of uh, taking advantage of those wins uh, during this time of, uh, you know, continued crisis. And oh my gosh, the youth, I've been showing up to youth led actions and events in my community because they're telling me things again, that I don't know, like that are affecting them and having their voice the center. They're organizing their own protests. They're organizing their own collective action events. So you have kids who are making sure other kids are being fed in their community. Like, that's what keeps me um, hopeful and engaged that um, it's not only us, but uh, for those who are parents, you're extending this down to your youth or somebody is, uh, people who care for other youth are extending this down to youth and they're becoming more empowered. They're going to have to save us. <laughs> they're going to be the leaders on climate change. They're going to be the leaders on this continued racial justice movement. Um, and so I'm just so enamored by the work that they're doing. Um, and that's that's what I hope parents are hearing and listening to right now is that having these conversations with your youth on how do I keep my family safe? How do I keep my community safe? Uh, can inspire them to find out where to plug in. Like I said earlier, I don't expect everybody to be out there going out and marching for everything. You need to find out what advocacy looks like in your own system and in your own bubble. Uh, one of the cute stories that I tell from last year is there was a uh, bakers for black lives, people who like to do baked goods and make baked goods. They were selling them and giving the money to black organizations. Uh, and they even delivered cookies to one of our events. Um, so that was something that was within their wheelhouse that they felt comfortable doing that was still contributing to community. Uh, it could be giving free IT labor to uh, small nonprofits or grassroots organizations. If you have website building skills, that's giving back. Um, so just finding how you can uh, engage in collective care with your own talents and abilities, um, I think is so important and what we saw a lot of last year. And it mm -hmm. sounds like that's actually for so many youth, adults as well, but especially youth who may feel very isolated because of the pandemic, because of the, the necessity of distancing and even quarantining, as well as because of just the, the impact of discrimination and racial bias and racial trauma. For those youths who are feeling really isolated, this kind of activism sounds like one of the, the most crucial ways that they could potentially find community and we can support them in doing that. And there's actually um, some research to support that it actually is improving their mental health. Uh, that when you're getting involved in advocacy and activism, you're being involved with community and other people who are facing the same struggles and also trying to find solutions. Uh, so that is improving the negative mental health consequences of, uh, again, systemic racism and systemic oppression. Uh, so uh, I, th I think that is especially important for our youth to uh, find those ways to tap in and get connected because it also supports positive mental health outcomes. What I just want to tell people is uh, collective power, collective resilience is uh, what's changing our communities and what's helping each other uh, at an individual family and community level. Um, so any which way in which uh, we can center voices, and that's all voices, um, is so important. Uh, and just making sure we're not leaving certain people out of the conversation. Um, I said, I've been trying to check my ableism um, and thinking about how we're not centering people with disabilities in many of these conversations about trauma, about 
activism. Um, and so just making sure we are having all voices be heard and um, coming together as a community to talk about how do we find solutions to, again, so many of our societal issues. This episode has really focused my attention on the role that community plays in all of our lives, and especially in helping children and families recover from trauma and find a pathway to resilience. The wisdom of communities is so remarkable. Communities often don't get listened to, and yet they have the information that we need as helping professionals, as policymakers, as members of the community. It's our community, it's our village that can help us to find a pathway to resilience and a roadmap. And a lot of times, if we simply get out of the way and empower communities to carve that pathway, then we're going to have a lot more success. And so, I, again, I really appreciated the emphasis on people needing to not feel alone and to know that there are ways that their communities can support them and that we just really need to do a lot more listening to the community for the best way to go about that. Many thanks to our guests on this episode, Dr. April Alexander, Hernan Carvente Martinez, Jessica Fireman, Dr. Viola Von Eden, and Karen Zilberstein. Visit RoadmapToResilience.org to learn more about our guest experts, access additional videos and resources, or send us a message. If this episode piqued your interest, we'd love for you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. And if you imagine this episode would resonate with a colleague or friend, please share it. Roadmap to Resilience is a collaboration between Pandemic Parenting and the University of Connecticut School of Medicine with special thanks to the Interorganizational Child Trauma Task Force. Roadmap to Resilience is produced by my co-host, Dr. Julian Ford, myself, Dr. Amanda Zella Husky, along with Carmen Vincent and Victoria Bruick. Many thanks to Jennifer Valentine for her strategic support and to the teams at Pandemic Parenting and the Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders for providing promotional support. We'd also like to thank the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Child Traumatic Stress Network for their financial support of this project. Thank you for joining us in supporting children in need of a roadmap to resilience.